You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Ephesians chapter 2, will you? And we're so glad that you're here. If you're a guest with us today, let me officially welcome you. We are honored that you're here. We hope that you found a spiritual home. We hope that you find some friends along the way. If you take a moment inside the worship guide is a communication card. If you want like to complete that, or if you do so at the NRHBC backslash guest, we are honored to follow up with you. Be just grateful that you're here today. I am so grateful for Christian who's leading us in worship today. Christian is uh, our, our associate, and Danny is out at Cross Church. We lost our minister of music out there. He went to Oklahoma. I uh, can make an Oklahoma joke, but I'll choose not to. And uh, so we're platooning it until we, uh, until we find the, the new person. So thank you, Christian, if you're listening. I hope you'll join with me at Cross Church next Sunday. I'm going to have Dr. Daniel B. Wallace. Have you ever heard anybody say the Bible's just a made-up book people just men just wrote it Have you ever had anyone ask and question whether the new testament's been corrupted daniel b wallace is an expert in every sense of the word he has written a greek grammar that all pastors will refer to and read in a university or in bible seminary um, he is just profound in this in fact some of you may know the agnostic atheist named bart ehrman and Dr. Ehrman is a skeptic, to say the least. Uh, Daniel Wallace debated him. And so we've got a rare treat to have this Dallas Theological uh, expert will be in a conversation. He will communicate in a way that connects with anybody that you bring. He's a laid-back California guy, and he'll probably show up in a Hawaiian shirt. Uh, but it's going to be a great night. Tickets are on sale today, $10 Ministry Gallery. Every dollar that you give toward that is going to benefit Cornerstone Assistance Network, which goes to the needy, the marginalized, and Tarrant County. So it's going to be a great night. So bring somebody with you and join with me that evening. Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know if you've seen this before, but I follow what is the Associated Press. They call it AP Oddities. This came up. An assistant principal at an elementary school was recently accused of accessing the school district's computers, the internal system. Essentially, what she or her daughter had done was reach inside the system and give more than 170 votes out of one IP address for her 17-year-old daughter who was the running for homecoming queen at the local high school. Pensacola, Florida, Taint High School there in Pensacola, School district experts could quickly find out that all these votes were coming from the same IP address. They arrested the mother, the assistant principal, and they also arrested the daughter. Don't you imagine those two probably sat in county jail for a couple hours or maybe overnight wondering, what are we doing? Was this really worth it? And if they took it to another level, they might have asked the question that I'm asking with you today, what's wrong with us? Over the next few moments, I want to look at that question. Now, I'm not asking what's wrong with you. I'm asking what's wrong with me. A lot of you are experts in asking and answering the question, what's wrong with you? But today I want to ask and answer this question, what's wrong with me? 
Because in Ephesians 2, this is the classic text. It's the classic text on sin. It's the classic text on salvation. In fact, if God had decided to make a homepage on how to get to heaven and how to be prevented from heaven, on the homepage right there in the web address would be Ephesians 2. This is the classic place. No better place for us to be as we lead up to Easter. And so for the next few moments, I want to look at this question, what's wrong with me and what did God do to fix it? Look with me at the beginning in verse 1, also in verse 5, as the question's asked again, what's wrong with me? And the Bible says this, you were dead in your trespasses of your sins. And watch carefully how the Bible repeats this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. It's essentially the very same. The Bible repeats itself in verse 1 and verse 5. The Bible thinks this is so important that it needs to repeat it. And so if you're asking, if you were to ask the Bible, ask God, what's wrong with me? God is very blunt. Like a doctor giving a diagnosis, incredibly blunt. And the Bible just says quite simply, you are dead spiritually. More on what that means in a minute, but your spiritual condition outside of Jesus Christ means you're unable to respond to God. You have no stimuli that would respond to him. In the very first three verses, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, is everything you need to know about the Bible's view on what it calls sinfulness. And you're going to see, even though it speaks of your dead and your, to your spirit to God, it's going to draw a tight connection to your spiritual deadness outside of Jesus, to your moral life. Sin is failure to conform to God's law. John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, sin is lawlessness. So if you were to ask Paul what's wrong with me, he would say, you're morally dead, you're spiritually dead outside of Jesus Christ. And the Bible doesn't say that you've got a cold spiritually. The Bible doesn't say that you have COVID spiritually. The Bible says you're dead spiritually outside of Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't say that you're in the doghouse with God. That's a bad place to be, right, husbands? The Bible says that you are dead to God outside of the work of the Spirit in Jesus. And this is one of those Bible teachings that can be empirically verified. Now, what I mean by that is I'm going to switch gears for a second. Because if you don't believe the Bible, I want to show you how the Bible connects to you. I was raised by one believer and the other was an agnostic atheist, so I'm always trying to think about ways to make the Bible connect to those who don't believe it. So this teaching is empirically Perfectly verified. I'll give you a couple of examples. What I came across several weeks ago and shared with you, this article, Why Highly Successful People Seek Therapy. Have you notice that? Why do highly successful people seek therapy? In the article, it discusses the five most common reasons why some of the most successful people go to counseling and seek therapy. And the first, the number one reason was what is known as the imposter syndrome. What it defines as the imposter syndrome is a persistent feeling that you're not just good enough. Even though these people are the richest of the rich, the most successful of the successful, somehow you're afraid that somebody's going to find you to be a fraud, someone's going to find you to be a fake. And so you struggle with self-esteem. That's the, that's the best of the best of us. And we're finding this out. One in four young adults between the ages of 18 and 24 tell us they've considered suicide. 
They have so much to live for, so many good things happening for them. They've got a country, a wealth of educational opportunities in front of them, and yet one in four, according to the CDC this past summer, were considering suicide. The number of people, the number of adults who are experiencing depression has tripled in recent months, tripled, who are experiencing depression. The truth is we know there's something wrong with us emotionally and spiritually. I don't have to spend a long time defining that for you. And yet, the Bible's condition that you are sinful, it's not a popular view. We want to say that we've sort of got a cold, we're sick, but dead seems to be an exaggeration. But you can see, it's again, it's empirically verified. Take labor management for a moment. Anyone who's familiar with this, who's worked for a union, pro-union, anti-union, all those type things, we're in a work, we're a right-to-work state, you know the history of this. Then the beginning, when industry takes place, the worker is sacrificed, oftentimes for the profits or for the good of the company. He or she is sent in to risk their lives. We've seen this over and over again. In my own home state, coal mines of Kentucky, so many of those people died as a result of not having the care taken. So then unions form and empower the worker. And what happens? Over time, the union becomes so powerful that management has no power. Then those who are the working for the company often cook the golden goose. Is that the saying? Did I get that right? They oftentimes cook the goose that laid the golden egg and kill the very company because it's out of balance. The pendulum swings. We see that there's something wrong with us socially, emotionally. We see it all the time. Our founders knew this. We're given a government of checks and balances. The three branches were designed by the founders so that each branch would not exercise too much power over the other. These wise men, the founding fathers, knew something was wrong with us. We did not handle power well. What was it? We were told in school, power corrupts, but absolute power? Absolutely. So there's all this evidence for the Bible's teaching that something inherently is wrong with us. And the Bible diagnoses this in verse 1, this repetition, but again it repeats itself. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Let me just say to you, just as street-level language I could say to you, you're not in trouble with God. You're not in the doghouse with God. You're dead to God. The Bible says you're in a morgue outside of Christ. Now, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you either were or perhaps you are now a spiritual dead man walking. To drive this point home, the Bible says that every home without Jesus Christ is a funeral home. And every person in that home without Jesus is a corpse. And every bed in that home is a casket. That's what the Bible is saying. Again, it's not popular. We don't talk like this in America today. But again, it can be empirically verified. All categories. Verse 3, the Bible says, Among whom we once lived in the passions of flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And again, this is all classes of people. You don't fix this with education. You don't fix it with wealth. You don't fix it because you're a certain zip code or a certain ethnicity. So the Bible's not saying that hell's angels, bikers, are spiritually dead. It's saying Scott Mays is spiritually dead outside of Jesus. It's not saying that Nazis are spiritually dead and good American-loving, patriotic people like you are okay. No, it's saying all people are. 
Makes a difference if you're educated or illiterate. You may have a PhD from University of Texas. Outside of Jesus Christ, you're spiritually dead. You could have not even a GED. Makes no difference. You're spiritually dead outside of Jesus Christ. You may have a mansion in Westlake. Your servants' quarters may be bigger than my house. Outside of Jesus Christ, you're spiritually dead. You may be in a tent living under a bridge someplace. Outside of Jesus Christ, you are spiritually dead. Prosperity does not move the spiritual needle. It makes no difference if you're religious or pagan. You may have been baptized or christened at birth by loving parents. You may know the ins and outs. You may know exactly when to stand, when to sit down, when I'm about to signal that we're done with all this. You may know all that. Some of the greatest preachers in history were lost. They were spiritually dead even while they were preaching. And they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ thereafter. Down throughout church history, you'll find men who were running orphanages, raising money for those who were needy and found out this was their condition. I don't care who you are. I don't care what ethnicity you are. I don't care who you voted for. The Bible says what's wrong with us is wrong with all of us. We're in the morgue with God. I think of a man named Toby I read about this past week. Toby's brother was in banking, and uh, they grew up in a farm in Ohio. It's an NPR story, if you know how those work. So Toby comes home. He's in college. He's a young man, and his father's on all fours out back, and he rushes out to his father thinking his father's had a heart attack. And his father's just so distraught because his brother had just been arrested for bank fraud. And he holds up the paper where the news of Toby's brother and this man's son. He said, promise me, Toby, you will never do this. Toby looked at his father and said, absolutely, I can promise you I won't, Dad. I swear that I won't. 22 years later, that brother was before the same judge that sentenced his other brother for bank fraud. He cheated the IRS at almost $300,000. He made up mortgages out of complete thin air. And he found himself asking the question, how did I get here? I promised my father that I would not do this. What's wrong with Toby? The Bible says what's wrong with Toby. It's not his environment. It's not his lack or his excess education. It's not the color of his skin. The Bible says in verse 1, he's dead like Scott Mays. I'm Scott Mays, dead in trespasses and sin. So what does that mean? Well, spiritual death looks, acts like physical death. Have you been around a dead person recently? I am, and I'm not just talking about the people I speak to on Sunday morning. I'm around dead people all the time. So I was a few feet away from one just yesterday, I think it was, and uh, maybe it was two days ago. I met a lot of these, and I don't care who it is. You can walk up to the corpse. You can yell at it. If you were so disrespectful, if you poked it, if you shook it, you know what's going to happen. You're not going to get any response. There's no stimuli there. There's nothing that's going to respond to you. They're dead. And the Bible says that outside of Jesus Christ, that's the condition of every person. That's the condition of every person. Sin will kill you physically, but it will also kill you spiritually first. It is a killing machine. And the Bible's teaching here that you cannot do any good outside of Jesus Christ may not make any sense to you. 
The Bible's not saying that you cannot do any one good act, but you have no, you no, have no response mechanism to God. To be spiritually dead means I do not respond to God. I have no desire for Jesus Christ and for holy things. God is dead to me. So the Bible says, what's wrong with me? I'm dead spiritually. Why do I do wrong? The Bible says, well, this is where it begins to speak about where I went wrong. And begin verses 2 and 3. It talks about how we got in this condition. The Bible's really clear that there's three sources. There's three effects and causes, if you will, for how we got here. The first is you and I inherited the sin nature. Beginning in verse 2, look what the Bible says here. In which you walked, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Now move your eyes right there. It says, the spirit that is at work in the sons, key on that word, sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children. That word children and that word sons. It's not just speaking of people who do this. The Bible communicates that we inherit what is called a sin nature. You do not have to teach your children how to lie, how to cheat, how to steal. Tracy and I have raised three. They know how to do wrong all by themselves. They don't need a primer on that. Neither did their father. He didn't need a primer on it. The Bible says by nature. And that word children is communicating to us there's an inherited nature here. You don't know the name Pelagius. He's a name that comes down to us throughout church history. Church history has condemned him as a heretic, but you might know him in the turn of the 5th century as an Irish monk. Pelagius taught what so many people in America just believe naturally, that we do not inherit a sinful nature from our parents, that our sin comes from our environment. That's what he would teach. We have a bad model, bad models, therefore we're bad people. And the truth is there are millions of Pelagians, that's based on Pelagius, the condemned here, there are a million of Pelagians running around the world today probably inside of our church, that they say, you know, look, we're born good. What happened to us is we got in a bad environment. We're born a neutral slate, one philosopher said. We're born a blank slate, and we got into this bad environment. The reason we sin is because of my genes. The reason we sin is because of my parents. But Jesus spoke about us being intrinsically bad. Listen to this word from Matthew chapter 7. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts to His children? Did you see what Jesus did to you there? You got dressed up, put on some of your finest, you came, you sang these songs, and the preacher and Jesus are calling you evil. That's what Jesus did. He said, look, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father who's not evil? It's a point of comparison. Jesus taught that each one of us is inherently from our parents a sinner by nature. Now, again, the vast majority of us don't believe this. The vast majority of this city does not believe this. We think if we truly spot an evil person, a Hitler of our day, well, the reason they're this way is we've got to look back. They were mistreated. They were a victim of racism. They were oppressed. They were refused a good education. And all those things may be true. They're contributing factors. But the Bible says at the beginning, as you and I came into this world, we inherited this. The Bible teaches in the most succinct place in all the Bible, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, 
just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that one man? Adam. And death came through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So the Bible teaches we inherited this. This came from my father. It came from my mother. It came from their grandparents. And if we traced our genealogy back all the way to Adam, it's that. So in the outside world, the Bible would talk about it one way, but the outside world speaks of nature versus nurture. Do we do wrong because we were nurtured that way, or do we do wrong because of our very nature? How do our children learn right from wrong? And the Bible tells us we'd rather compete against one another than cooperate with one another. We're so prone for revenge and envy. Reconciliation is so rare and revenge is so popular. People are motivated to do mass shootings or even if they do good, oftentimes I do the very best to outshine you. We, why are we not inwardly content when we have everything that we set out to desire and we find an emptiness inside? No, we're not blank slates like the philosopher John Locke said. Instead, the Bible tells us that our sinful nature is passed along one generation to the next, and it comes from Adam. Here's a second source right here in Ephesians 2. The Bible says we do evil, not only because we inherit this, but because there's a being called Satan. The text says in front of you, there's the prince of the power of the air. You see that? Mark those words in verse 2. The prince of the power of the air. The Bible has all these different synonyms for Satan's name. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So here's what you've got going against you today. You've got the genetic disposition. You're hell-bent to do wrong because it's just passed down to you. But then in an age that we're going to split the atom and all that goes on, yes, there's a being called Satan, and he's alive and well. How does that work? How can Satan tempt us? I love what C.S. Lewis does in his little work called Screwtape Letters, the Cambridge Oxford Scholar, one time agnostic, then turned believer. He said it works simple like this. He gave an example. He said there's a sound atheist who's been an atheist for 20 years, just sure there is no God. He's in the British Museum. He's reading, and a thought comes to his brain. He says, perhaps there is a God. And the work, the screw tape letters, is a senior demon writing how to tempt people well to a junior demon. He says, at the moment this thought came into his mind, the senior demon said, I had a number of choices. I could try to battle that thought. I could try to argue that there was no God. He said, instead, I just chose to say, you shouldn't be thinking about hard subjects like this before lunch. He said, I convinced him that he needed to get a bite to eat. He walks out the museum. He sees the guy selling newspapers, and the rest of his days, he never thought a second time about it. That's how simple and subtle the prince of the power of the air can work in our lives. The Bible says there is demonic activity. Here's the third. The Bible points to, again in verse 2, these words, following the course of this world. See those words? In the nature versus nurture, the Bible says first it's nature, but then it's also nurture, following the course of this world. We're doing wrong because the patterns of this world are wrong. We think that living for Christ the narrow way is the way that people say is unpopular, and it's the opposite. Jesus said, 
that if you sin, you are a slave to sin. John chapter 8, verse 34. In today's text, the word following is used twice in verse 2. It's the word mastered. We're mastered like a slave. Environments do matter. If you grew up in racism, if you grew up in oppression, if you grew up in those pieces, then yes, you have to break the pattern. There's dysfunctionality past one family to the next, one generation to the next. We even see that in the book of Genesis. One of the most remarkable things for me as an adult is to see a child who was abused then in turn abuse others. Surely the saying is correct, hurt people hurt people. The Bible says you and I are sinners because we're following the popular ways of this world. You ever stop to wonder how all the 1930s Nazi Germany, why wasn't there more voices stepping up to say, these Jewish people matter? Why are we doing this? But that's just back then, right? That doesn't go on now? That's right. Thanks for correcting me there. We're following the course of this world. We're puppets on the string. Now, somebody's here, maybe you're arguing with me. So, Pastor, I haven't chosen to follow your Jesus, and I'm absolutely free to do what I want to do. Yes, you are. You're absolutely free to do what you want to do. Take an alcoholic and put in front of the alcoholic a Bible and a beer. What's the alcoholic going to choose? Put in front of a racist a Bible that says we're to love all people. What's that racist likely to do? Remember the words of Jesus. You and I are slaves to sin outside of Jesus Christ. We come by it by inheritance. We come by it because of being called Satan. And we come by it by the patterns of this world. All this reminds me of a kind of a comical story of an old prospector. He was out in the West. He was coming into the bar and everybody knew this prospector. Is one of those that panned for gold, was sort of a sour person. You ever known somebody like that? Just seemed to be baptized in lemon juice. <laughs> no prospector was coming into those doors of the bar, and there was an old cowboy in there with two six-shooters. He said, I'm going to have a little fun with this old boy. So as the prospector comes in, this cowboy said, I want to see you dance. Took out the six-shooters, emptied both, all 12 rounds. Of course, the prospector is dancing around a little bit as the bullets hit his feet. As the cowboy reaches back to reload his weapons, at this point, the prospector pulls out his double barrel shotgun, puts it in the face of the cowboy, and says, have you ever kissed the back end of a mule? To which the cowboy said, no, I haven't, but I've always wanted to. <laughs> See, friend, you're like that old cowboy. You're under compulsion. You've got all this stuff pulling against you. By nature, the spirit of the prince of the power of the air and the pattern of this world. There is something wrong with us, and you can see it almost everywhere you turn. This year's Super Bowl winning quarterback, Tom Brady, won his seventh Super Bowl. But 60 Minutes several years ago did an insightful interview with him, wide-ranging. He had just won his third Super Bowl when they sat down with him. Of course, he's one of the most celebrated and accomplished athletes of our day. Listen to what Brady said, and I quote, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. 
I mean, this can't be what's all it cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27 at the time of the interview. What else is there for me? End quote. What's wrong with us? The Bible says again, it gives us this powerful diagnosis. Here's the last piece I want to look at with you. What did God do for us? Two of the most beautiful words you'll ever hear begin verse 4. But God. Notice I did not say, what can you do? I said, what did God do for us? The Bible says that God first loved us. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, we are like that addict. You put a Bible and a beer in front of us, and we'll choose that which is unholy. We'll choose that which is wrong. But God. The Bible says God came for us. And I love the way it puts it here, God being rich in mercy. Look at this next phrase highlighted for you there. Made us alive. Let's keep it right there. Made us alive together with Christ. We needed that. We need to be made alive because he found us in the condition that we were dead. We weren't spiritually with COVID. We weren't spiritually with a cold. We were dead. And Christ comes with resurrection power. What happened to that Easter? Not only did Christ raise from the dead, but all those who are in Christ were given a resurrection power. God performs a miracle in us. I'd love to see a miracle. I'm sure like you would. I would love to see the blind see. I'd love to see the lame walk. I'd love to see those with cancer and leukemia healed. But anytime one person turns from their sins and comes and embraces Jesus Christ, that, my friend, is a miracle. Here's a truthful sentence I want you to take away and take home with you. You are more sinful than you believe. But you're far more loved than you can imagine. Both of those things are so true of you sitting there, so true of me standing here. The Bible says two beautiful words, but God. Friend, notice this next piece the end of verse 5, because of the great love with which he loved us. How much love? So much love that he had to use the word love twice, once as a noun and a second time as a verb. That's a lot of love. You are far more messed up than you comprehend, but you're far more loved than you can imagine. And the Bible says, but by grace you've been saved. You know, because so many people in the world, the experts, say what's wrong with us is I don't have enough education, I don't have enough money, I'm not the right color of skin, I don't have the right party, I don't have the right ethnicity, nationality. All those are the things my genes led me to all this. Because we get the condition wrong, we don't have the solution right. But when we understand what's happening with us, that's when we understand that God can make us alive. And it's not by my efforts. It's not what Scott can do. It's not about getting more education. It's not becoming more moral. It's not all those self-efforts. This is not self-help. This is God-help. God came and sent his son Jesus Christ to be crucified for you. He took a punishment you deserve so that you get a reward he deserved. This is the gospel. God loves you greatly. And you don't deserve that. And nothing you can do can fix yourself. But God has a solution for you, and he can fix you. You know, this is a powerful before and after picture. 
Has that happened to you? Do you have a before and after picture spiritually? Man, I'd love to have one physically, athletically. Wouldn't you? I, I know you would too. You watch me every week. So, boy, I wish he had an after picture. I'm the before picture on one of those things, right? I get it. Do you have one spiritually? I do. Happened to me when I was just a young man. Do you have a before and after picture? Before I met Jesus and after I met Jesus. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.